0: Hello and welcome to another special edition of Deep State Radio, part of our Agenda 2021 series of discussions in which we turn our attention from the day-to-day news to what the policy priorities for an incoming administration in January ought to be. What we're going to talk about today are uh, health policies, in particular policies that follow up on the COVID-19 pandemic and what is likely to evolve with it over the next several months, um, as well as broader health policies to avoid uh, ending up in this kind of mess again. We're very fortunate to be joined uh, by three of our regular commentators on this, three of the most distinguished commentators that you'll find anywhere on these subjects. Uh, Lori Garrett, Pulitzer Prize winning author. Hi, Lori. how are you? Hi, David. And Dr. Lena Wen, who is a uh, emergency room physician, she's a teacher. She was a policymaker. Where she she was the health commissioner of uh, Baltimore. Hi, Lena. How are you?
1: Hi, I'm glad to join you and Lori and Kavita.
0: And and as Lena mentions, uh, in in a few minutes, we'll also be joined by Dr. Kavita Patel, um, who right now is doing a TV hit, and then she's going to pop in in a in a in a couple of minutes. Um, although our focus in these discussions is 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 looking ahead towards potential biden administration and what their policies ought to be and how they ought to improve on where we are i i think given the, the nature of the crisis that we're in we we need to talk about where we are um in uh, you know uh the last time we all talked things were getting worse they were getting worse at a substantial pace yesterday we had 2000 deaths in the United States associated with this for the first time since uh, April. So we are, are have continued to trend upward in that category. Laurie, how would you assess this moment in the COVID crisis?
2: It's dire. It's, uh, we've, we've blown the opportunity to do all the so-called easy things to bring this under control. We have out of control outbreaks in the majority of United States. Uh, In fact, in about 80% of American states, we have out-of-control outbreaks. We only have anything close to control or diminishing outbreaks in eight states. Uh, So that tells you right there that we have a catastrophic situation. Adding to that, um, cities all over America are reporting that they're running out of cash, They've tapped into every emergency budget. They've tapped in everywhere they can to find ways to, to keep the hospitals running, to keep paying the first responders and all the overtime costs to handle these massive testing rollouts and assorted other efforts they're trying to do and to prepare for what uh, the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration told us yesterday is going to be one of the worst hurricane seasons in modern memory with up to 25 major named storms uh, and perhaps as many as a dozen serious hurricanes. And those are all likely to hit the very same states that are right now struggling with COVID and struggling to figure out how to pay the bills. And just today, uh, Steve Mnuchin told uh, the press corps that he has no intention, that the White House has no intention of supporting what he called illegitimate bailouts for cities and states around America that, quote, didn't do the right things. So we're, I think, pretty much at worst-case scenario right now with the president still wanting the nation to send their kids back to school, most school districts struggling to to come up with some policy guidelines with little or no uh, direction and assistance from the federal level cities and states running out of cash and out-of-control epidemics in the majority of U.S. states.
0: Uh, Lena, do you agree? And, and, and are there areas you would like to amplify on?
1: Yeah, I do agree. And I, I hate that we are starting off on such a note, um, but this is where we are. And I agree completely with Lori that it didn't have to be this way. And I think that's maybe the most tragic of the lot. When we look at other countries, when we look at most countries in the European Union, Australia, New Zealand, many Asian countries, we've seen that they use the period of lockdown to suppress their level of infection virtually to zero. And as a result, when they reopened, and they, re- they reopened cautiously based on the science, based on the evidence, as a result, they were able to contain the new cases of COVID-19 in a way that we just simply have not. And there was just um, another projection released by the University of Washington that shows that we will have um, now 300,000 deaths by December. And I think the worst part of it is that this doesn't have to be this way. You know, Laurie mentioned about the weather, and I do think it's a helpful analogy in this sense, too, that you look at something like a hurricane, a hurricane you can prepare for, but it's going to come to you no matter what. You can't do something to make the hurricane go away. But in this case, there are things that we can do right now. There are things that we could have done all along, but even moving forward, there are things that we can do right now to prevent another 150,000 deaths in the next four months. And those are things that we've been talking about for months now. They are universal mask wearing, having that as a mandate. They are restricting indoor gatherings. They are rolling back the phases of reopening in places in particular that are undergoing rapid surge. There are things like ramping up um, testing in a widespread way. I just wrote a column about this yesterday for the Washington Post that talks about how we need this, um, we need antigen tests. Yes, they are less accurate, but perfect cannot be the enemy of the good here. Right now, we're picking up essentially zero asymptomatic cases. Even if you have a test that's picking up 50%, 60%, 70% of asymptomatic cases, that's a lot better than what we have right now. And we need to be thinking through these creative solutions in addition to doing the things that we already know are effective because the future is not inevitable and we have the ability to control this virus. We're not powerless here and we need for the American people to step up, but we also very critically need for our federal government to do everything they can. And that begins by acknowledging the problem and then addressing the short-term urgent needs that there are.
0: Okay, so let's slightly turn our our, our focus forward. Let's look at the period between now and the election. We have several factors at play here. Lori, you mentioned one. The weather is going to be a factor at play here. Another is that the election may cause the government to take certain kinds of steps, but some of these may not be helpful steps. These steps could include uh, further sort of cooking the books, and I think we've seen a lot of evidence that the books are cooked um, in terms of data from, from key states and from the federal government. Uh, and, uh, you know, we we, we have uh, the decision about whether or not people should go back to school. We have a decision. I, I can't believe we're actually having this discussion, but we're having a decision about whether or not colleges are going to play major sports um, and whether we're going to, you know, fill up arenas with people for those um, major sports. We had the president of the United States showing how a campaign affects things, saying we will have a vaccine by election day. Uh, and so, you know, that, well, that suggests that there are going to be lies. Between now and November 3rd, what do you expect is going to change the nature of this crisis, Lori?
2: Huh. Well, your list, unfortunately, is accurate. So all of those are cause for concern. I was one of uh, 400 uh, people engaged in the COVID effort that co-signed a letter uh, this week um, warning that the FDA needs to take seriously all the safety precautions related to a COVID vaccine and not allow it to be rushed for the sake of reelection of the president. Um, there's growing anxiety in the research community, that there's pressure being applied to the key developing companies, to their allied smaller biotech firms that are engaged in the effort with them, and in the clinical trial format. One of the things that we know is that you're not going to be able to conjure uh, between now and November 3rd, a vaccine that has been fully tested for long-term side effects, because that's not long-term. So even if you had a vaccine that looked really good in these first clinical trials uh, so that you're able to say in sometime in October that, yes, a certain percentage of the recipients, the, the uh, volunteers, showed positive neutralizing antibody responses, you have no idea how long those responses will last, whether that's a response for two weeks, two months, two years, you don't know. And you certainly don't know if you're going to have Guillain-Barre syndrome or a whole host of other possible outcomes that are complications from the vaccine. You only know, were they okay the day they got the shot? Um, And that's just one of many things that worry me that are about the rush agenda. Meanwhile, I mean, I don't think we can understate uh, what could befall us if we get hit on a a state that's struggling with COVID like Florida uh, gets hit with uh, a category three or category four hurricane sometime between now and late October. And uh, given that the uh, Mid-Atlantic is right now at a record high temperature. Surface temperatures of the ocean have never been hotter than they are today. That fuels major storms. So when a high energy system hits hot water, boom, you got Superstorm Sandy times 10. And uh, I think what we've seen with this president uh, and this administration is it's it's up to the states Uh, you know, the president will brag and take credit when it looks like it worked. And when it looks like the federal response was slow, poor, or just didn't even materialize, then uh, it will be blame the states. They screwed it up. I think, um, and of course, the other thing is we all know, and this is not directly related to COVID, but we know that fears about getting infected will keep a lot of people from voting in person, that a huge percentage of the electorate wants to vote by mail, and that the White House is doing everything possible, as is the RNC, to try and undermine the credibility of voting by mail. Um, And I think this is going to escalate uh, as we go further and closer towards November.
0: Okay. So, first of all, for those of you who are listening and are not benefiting from the fact that we are on a Zoom call, uh, let me tell you that Dr. Kavita Patel has joined us. Hi, Kavita.
3: Hi, David. Uh, Sorry. Um, I'm, I'm playing a typical doctor by being late. That's uh, my only excuse.
0: Um, well, you shut up. That's, that's a positive thing. Um, we're in the midst of talking about what we expect between now and the election, then we'll talk about it. after that. I'm going to ask the question of Lena, and then I'll ask the question of you, Lena. What what, what other factors, you know, other than the ones that I mentioned that Lori mentioned? Do you, do you worry about complicating things between now and the election?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I agree, of course, with um, what Lori just said. Um, I'll um, add on to um, two more things. Um, Lori mentioned about vaccines. I also worry about the speed at which this is done and the political interference Um, potentially um, with this process, as we have seen political interference with some other evidence-based guidelines, for example, the CDC guidelines that came out and were subsequently changed, um, there was clear political interference with something that really should have no partisanship or ideology behind it at all. Um, I worry also about the equity component of the vaccines, um, that unless we have thought through this in advance, Um, we're going to be leaving out um, those individuals who are the most vulnerable. I worry about the impact, as we have talked about before, Dave and on your show, about communities of color and the disproportionate impact that African Americans, Latino Americans, Native Americans have already shouldered in this pandemic and what that's going to look like moving forward. It's only going to get worse. We're now having data that these same disparities are seen in our children. Um, And maybe not surprisingly, because if they're adults, if the adults and caregivers are impacted, then of course they would be as well. And speaking of children, I think that's the other thing to highlight that's the big unknown between now and November or just in general coming into the fall. We don't know what it's going to look like when schools reopen. Um, The New York State has just announced um, today that they will allow um, schools to to reopen, at least um, for, for individual jurisdictions to be making that decision. And while it actually, I think in general, it's not... Unreasonable, considering this is such a challenging decision that people are facing. Of course, there are many effects on the economy. There are many effects also on working parents and effects on children too, um, who are not in school. Um, I also think that we need to be prepared for a lot more outbreaks occurring, especially because we don't have the surveillance. We don't have adequate testing. Um, I don't think there's been a lot of thought about what happens when schools reopen um, because we don't know that it's not a question of if they are going to be outbreaks is when there're going to be outbreaks and how will we control these outbreaks. Um, there's now new data coming from the World Health Organization that what seems to be driving the outbreaks around the world are among young people. Um, and um, the dynamics of the disease will almost certainly be shifted substantially when we have children going back to school and congregating in large numbers, especially in settings where there is so much community spread. That's ongoing. And so I think that's going to be a big unknown. I think coming into flu season and the demand on our healthcare system is another big unknown. And I remain optimistic. I actually think that for President Trump and the Trump administration, I actually think they still have a chance to turn this around by doing the things that, frankly, they should have done months ago, but they still can turn this around. Um, I'm just not sure that they will. But as an American, as a public health person without a political um, stance in this, I just I, I really hope that they will turn this around because this is about all of our health and well-being.
0: Okay, same question for you, Kavita, which is between now and the election, what do you think is going to happen that's going to change the nature of this? But I'm going to throw in a little twist, which is uh, in a prior conversation we had in a prior show, um, uh, our friend Jeremy Kanin Canan- said that there was actually something encouraging happening, which was because countries were taking steps to control COVID, it was seeming to reduce to some degree the severity of the flu season in the global South. Mm -hmm. Nobody has said one encouraging thing so far. So I want to give you the chance to say one encouraging thing and then go back onto a litany of horrors.
3: Sure. And I'll keep it, I'll try to keep it brief because I know, I know Lori and Lena probably would love to tackle that as well. So let me, let me start with the, I'm going to be incredibly political here and say that between now and the election, I fully expect the mission accomplished moment with like, you know, we've got a vaccine and, uh, you know, hooray, this is like a solution to everything. And there will be some populace of the American public that will take that and be like, yeah, everything's great, the stock market will rally. Let me focus on the states that matter. Yeah, by
0: the way, you also had Alex Azar yesterday saying, well, I got 50 million doses of hydroxychloroquine. Let's use that. You know, we've got it. Let's let's have some fun. <laughs> like, have a hydroxy like, uh, like hydroxychloroquine like
3: Oprah, you, you get a useless drug. You get a useless <laughs> yeah. drug. You get a drug that could kill you. No problem. I, I've just... I've I'm not laughing, but laughing. So I'll just say, let me just break it down. If there is anything I've learned after working on two presidential campaigns, now it comes down to a handful of states and voter turnout, period. So we can look at all the ways that voter turnout could be impacted, particularly voter voter turnout for Joe Biden. A lot of this is going to get wrapped up in potentially who his vice presidential nominee is. We know it's a woman, but is it going to be a woman of color? Will that help with getting out the black vote? Will that help with getting out Latinx voters? Will that help with getting out the demographic that is actively spreading COVID and seems to also be the people we need to come out and vote? Those are not two factors that go along together very well. That combined with the fact that, you know, in-person voting is going to be just a difficult proposition if we continue this pattern. Um, As of today, we now have, you know, I told you, Lori Garrett is prophetic because she said 200,000 deaths by the end of August, and now we have more modeling to show 300,000 a couple of months after that. That's timed with an election that is going to cause people to be scared to vote. And then with the obscurity around voting and absentee voting and mail-in voting and the traditional history of um, blocking out vulnerable populations from that process, you can imagine how that could potentially hurt uh, Joe Biden and potentially favor Donald Trump in between now and then, mission accomplished on the vaccine. To your point, though, David, I don't want, I will say that the good news on the flu it's, it's everything you just said, combined with the fact that we do have more states doing masks and physical distancing and, and things that should help to prevent the flu, by the way, as well as other infectious diseases, we might see a lighter coronavirus cold season also. But I think, um, and I, I will just say this, um, it, it, we're looking at least two doses of a vaccine, complicated refrigeration requirements, and generally speaking, you need to go somewhere to get a shot and we've already been telling Americans that like going places can be dangerous and if the timing plays out where we are in an upswing of cases or we're in the same place we are today i can tell you right now if you call to come and see me in my clinic it is 2 weeks to get an in person kind of non sick visit and i'm in a federally qual- i'm in a community health center for more kind of vulnerable uh, populations so i think that there's you know there's i I'm just, this is a deep state, Is a place where we can be incredibly honest. I've had a lot of conversations with fellow kind of Democrats who have said, we're really confident Joe Biden's going to be our president. And I've said, whoa, wait, like, do, do not get that confident. There's a lot of barriers to the, the normal polling that people can do virtually does not translate to votes the way it normally would. And that's what I worry about between now and November.
0: Yeah, that's that's definitely true. And And by the way, Earlier this week, I don't know if you guys have had time to listen to it, but we did a podcast with the folks who've been doing the scenarios about the upcoming elections and sort of playing out what might happen. And I think one thing that we have to remember is, although Biden's you know, got a 10% lead or a 9% lead now, uh, that's bound to tighten. It always tightens. And once it gets down to 4 or 5%, not only does the electoral college imbalance kick in you can win the election by 4% and 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 not win the electoral college uh, but it becomes much easier for these other factors to play a big role in tipping the scale in the other direction and it, and and it won't be just one other you'll have the russians and you'll have uh, covid and you'll have uh disinformation, you'll have voter suppression. Maybe that's why
3: I want to see I'll, you know, I'll I'll say it here, you know, August 7th, I'd love to see a Kamala Harris vice president cuz she will get in Bill Barr's face. I mean, you could imagine if there's a contested election, you're going to need to have somebody that is just going to go after um, this AG and and not back down, and I fully predict we're going to need that. No matter what the scenario is, we're going to need somebody who defends the election. for for whatever it is, or appropriately, if constitutional rights are inhibited, actually gets into people, you know, really brings that to the surface. So anyway, that's my little plug politically, I guess I should
2: say. I just, I just add a couple things to try and get this a little more hopeful. (laughs) I realize it's a stretch because we're in the middle of this COVID, all three of us, and it's hard for us to look, you know, push the the storm clouds aside, long enough to see if there's any sunshine out there. But um, I was just in uh, the Aspen Summit this week, which is traditionally, of course, in Aspen, Colorado, but was virtual this time. And Tony Blinken, who is, you know, the top policy person for Vice President Biden right now, um, made it very clear that COVID is the number one issue on the agenda, without a doubt, and that. It, it, that a great deal of time is being spent within the Biden team, including a daily COVID updating of uh, the candidate himself, um, and that you know he he told the group, look, uh, COVID has already killed more Americans than all wars and acts of terrorism since 1945 combined. That's a startling you know, a way to start the thinking about where we are. If you add to it that the Republicans want to leave town without doing anything about unemployment, anything about uh, the $600 checks, weekly checks that have been keeping people from drowning, anything about likely evictions, increased homelessness, and so on, um, you know, I really think if they don't come up with a package that uh, bails out something besides the airline industry and big banks and so on, and that actually uh, gets to everyday people and how they live and or don't survive in this climate, uh, then I think they've sowed their own destruction. And you look at the latest Quinnipiac, Quinnipiac, or however you say it, poll, and it shows that McConnell is in trouble in his home state of Kentucky, that Lindsey Graham is in trouble in his home state of South Carolina. You go down the list of the most powerful members of the Senate that are in the GOP, and if they're up for re-election, every one of them, Susan Collins, all of them, are now in neck-and-neck races for the first time in their lives against Democrats. So, I think if they basically flip the bird at every city and every state and say, "Eh, you got hurricanes coming and you're going broke, we're not going to bail you out because we don't bail out Democrat cities or we don't bail out Democrat governors. And if they similarly take attitudes about unemployed Americans, underemployed Americans, failed businesses and so on, on on the, you know, on the block in the neighborhood then I think they've just sowed their own destruction.
0: Okay. So let me let me flip the story now one more uh, sort of frame forward. It's January 20th. You're sitting beside Joe Biden. He's the president of the United States. You're pre- planning what the first 100 days are. COVID is still an issue. You can describe how much it's an issue. Um, but... COVID has also revealed some serious defects within our healthcare system. If you're giving advice on the first 100 days to a new president in that situation, what do you what do you say to them? And I'm going to begin with Lena because I know she has to step off in seven minutes. Uh, and so even if she doesn't go seven minutes, she, you can go and say your piece, step off, go to your uh, important appointment and um, then the baby. Yes. yes. Well, <laughs> that's okay. a, nothing, nothing is more important. Nothing is more important than that. And then uh, we'll, we'll finish up and we may go a little bit longer uh, 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 than after Lena departs. So Lena, go first. Sure.
1: So um yeah, I mean you, you ask um um a very open-ended question and so I'm going to give you a um a um, actually a specific answer because I think that um if I were to advise um a an incoming administration, I think that there are two sets of things that should be done. One is what you can do immediately and need to be done urgently. And then the other is what can we do that's longer term to fix some of these structural issues. And I think both are equally important. Sometimes we get caught up in the latter and we say, well, there's such big things to tackle. We need to fix our entire health insurance system. We need to be, you know, we need to be um, re-examining our public health infrastructure and investments in that. I mean, we need to be tackling structural racism and racism in our healthcare system. I mean, I of course agree with all these things. I think we urgently need to do these longer term issues as well and look at social determinants of health and not just look at healthcare, but look at health. I mean, I, I think all those are important. I also really want to invest in our healthcare infrastructure, specifically our public health infrastructure. That work should start and we shouldn't put it on the back burner. We should have a group of people who are working on these longer term policy changes. But urgently, we need to be implementing some things that can be done immediately. Um, Some easy, not easy, but quick actions would include making sure that we're part of the World Health Organization, that we are part of this global ecosystem once again. It would be activating the Defense Production Act if it has not been activated by then um, so that we can um, get um, ensure that we have adequate supplies of PPE and testing reagents. I would also, if by then we have not done this, which I, I mean would be shocking, but you know, but and horrific, but actually not not that shocking, um, would be having a national testing strategy. I would build a dashboard that reports in real time exactly what tests are being done what the test positivity rates are, what's the demographics for testing so we know that we're not neglecting most vulnerable populations and so that we can target our testing accordingly, what percentage of testing are, is of what type of test, which tests are coming back within what period of time, um, Which what percentage of positive tests are then followed up by contact tracing. Um, I mean, these are all the key data points that locales should be gathering anyway, but we need those data urgently because that's what will target our interventions. I would set up a National Contact Tracing Corps. And that group of people would then have the ability to work in public health settings going forward to fulfill these other core public health mandates as well. Um, and I would ensure that we don't price anybody out of the ability to get care for coronavirus, especially during this time. Um, but I think that, you know, I can go on with the list of kind of um, critical actions, but I think those are some of the things that can be done really quickly while we also work towards these longer-term systemic um, reforms as well.
0: Thank you. And please uh, uh, thank you, baby, for lending you to us a little longer than you had planned to be here. Um, And we'll see you again sometime soon. All right. Thanks, everyone. Lori, same question.
2: Well, I agree with everything that Lena just said. I would add, first first, and foremost, um, the president and the National Security Council uh, and HHS leadership need to decide what is the strategic goal uh, vis-a-vis COVID? Is it to eliminate it from America? Is it to eliminate it worldwide as a major life-threatening threat uh, or risk to human beings? Is it eradication? We need to have a really clear idea of what's the target so that policy flows from an appropriate targeting. Um, and with that, I would add, you you have to blend whatever that targeting is uh, into an effort to build up a program that goes way past covid that asks, you know, how do we not get here again with a more lethal pathogen? You know, back in 2005, I was advising the National Security Council under uh, George Bush because uh, some of us recognized that a mutant strain of H5N1 bird flu had emerged in northern China and spread across Siberia and then into Europe and this was a virus that, when it infected people, killed 60% of them. We're dealing with a virus right now that kills less than 1% of the people it infects. Uh, imagine if we were dealing with a virus that killed 60%. It's almost unfathomable. Uh, but we, this is not the worst-case scenario, what we're in now. So whatever happens in January, uh, assuming we're looking at a President Biden, it has to be a strategic plan that both addresses an appropriate targeting on the COVID front and builds into that creation of permanent infrastructure of surveillance and response that's far more robust than anything we've ever had before. And that puts it at the highest levels in the national security infrastructure where it has never previously
3: been.
0: Excellent excellent points. Kavita.
3: Let me do you mind if I kind of kind of get away from like public health COVID and just identify some broader health priorities, David? Is that
0: do, do that, I mind? No, this problem? is okay. we're All here right. to talk about what, no, no, no. what I, you I, would be advising him. And and frankly, the prompt that I was gonna give you there was because everything that 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 Lena and Lori said made a lot of sense. But we didn't address was that if you don't have a functioning public health system. Mm-hmm. You can't actually deal with any of these things. If you have yeah. tens of millions of people who don't have health care coverage, you have a national security problem. And right. that's been one of the flashing lights here from my point of view. Right. Maybe that's what you're going to say. maybe not. What are yeah, you no, yeah no, no,
3: no. Uh, yeah, it's like we're doing a mind melt, david. i huh? I, I yeah. definitely would focus. I think there's going to be enough. Uh, there's gonna be so
0: many Lori Lori just did an extremely nerdy kind of Star Trek thing. I know. Right? I do I got it. I got <laughs> oh, it. I got gosh.
3: it. I got oh, it. Oh my gosh. Uh, for, for okay. deep state viewers this is why you watch the, the actual For deep idiot.
0: state viewers, these guys <laughs> are nerds. We are. And they fit right in. Yeah, go on. <laughs>
3: So I so definitely I'm going to tell you there's been so much that's been undone in terms of women's reproductive rights. So day one, like the president needs to put a pen to rescinding gag rules, to doing everything possible to send a strong signal that a woman's body is her body and decisions over that should be between her and a doctor and that's it, period. And then I would also add because... Um, President Biden would be coming in in January when a special enrollment period would already be done for exchanges or ways to get Americans into healthcare. That was another action the Trump administration did was to really shrink the time where you could enroll into healthcare. That changed a little with COVID, but I would say to, you know, President Biden put it on steroids, the American's ability to buy into affordable health insurance and make it known loud and proud, made enrol- make enrollment so easy, phone, web, you know, whatever needs to happen, given, I think we'll still be in the throes of COVID. And then, so that gets a little bit to the access. And then the third is is really actually telling, you know, a lot of this the president can just do by by signaling into leadership positions that are not at the level of Tony Blinken but putting in charge of Medicare, someone who is actively going to make sure that nursing homes, post-acute facilities, all these things that we've been learning kind of through COVID, and candidly, Democrats and Republicans alike have neglected, that that does not get neglected anymore. So a day 100, you know, I've been part of now several transitions where we do this, like what's the day 100 kind of agenda priority setting briefing book look like? And, And I think this president is going to be walking into one that candidly, like I, I, the top one, you you've got to imagine people like Ron Klain, who are really close to the president, vice president, are telling him all these things. But then I'm hoping that for health care, and the good news is there's a deep bench. Unlike the Trump administration, there's a deep bench of highly highly credentialed people who are going to be able to take this and run with it, David. So the 100-day priority, a lot of this is going to be signals. And interestingly enough, President Obama got a lot of grief for using the executive order to do things that generally are not done by executive order. Uh, uh, Trump has taken that to a new level. Um, The numbers of executive orders far outnumber any previous president. I want to tell Joe Biden, you do this and go forth and conquer. Learn a lesson. We can do a lot by executive order, even if we don't have necessarily kind of, you know, a handle on what the composition of the Congress will look like. I hope it's a democratic sweep. But even if it's not, I would say push, push, and push again. And so women's kind of reproductive rights access to healthcare, and then meaningful change of the very broken health system that is dependent on sickness care, not prevention or public health period and
2: And, let's just agree the first thing he has to do is rescind almost every single trump executive order
3: yeah and 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 you know the good news again i mean i'm not speaking out of turn when i say there's very smart people that are actively cataloging like what damage has been done and here vice president biden is the list of what we need to do and so i I feel really positive. Um, it's interesting. Someone said, like, you know, this is a vice president. This is someone who doesn't have a traditional healthcare background. I said, it doesn't matter. I mean, he's got the bench strength of, you know, add up all those presidential candidates, Warren, Sanders, this. He's got the bench strength of the who's who in healthcare helping him. And so I personally feel the best about that sector and as well as foreign policy, given the vice president's just personal interests and professional background, I think that we've got a really strong ability to to have a first hundred days in health care.
0: Well, I hope he listens. You know, it was interesting because the beginning of the Democratic debates, one of the dividing line issues was between the Bernie Sanders and the Elizabeth Warrens, who said healthcare is a universal right, and Joe Biden, who said it wasn't. And I wonder how those debates would sound in the context of America in August of 2020, uh, given what we've all just been through. Uh, and you know one of the big arguments against it was this is preposterous because you couldn't possibly come up with twenty trillion dollars to spend over x years to do this thing. We've spent six trillion dollars this year so far. We'll end up spending ten trillion dollars because of this particular crisis without blinking an eye. Uh, and we could have done that to 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 fix this system. If you guys have the patience for two more minutes. One of the things that gets me going every day is I turn on the Twitter machine and I see what Lori is incensed about. Um, And sometimes she's like does three or four of these things uh, because I and I've really, you know, I've learn a lot from them talking about, for example, uh, uh, you know, people cooking the books, cooking the numbers. You know, and what the cost of that is. Another thing, though, that you were sort of sent off by yesterday, and maybe both of you can talk about it, and then we'll go. Uh, was the president's uh, notion that uh, you know we're going to buy American on drugs, okay. and that we're you know we're we're just not going to you know, and this is somehow going to be a good thing for us. Uh, and I found it uh, very illuminating. And so, Laurie first, and then Kavita, then we'll then we'll go.
2: Well, thanks for reading my tweets um,
3: and everybody out
2: there. I don't
0: drink, I don't drink coffee. So what oh. I do is I go to Twitter and I read these things and I get If you that read, part.
3: I'll just say, if you follow Lori and David, you're in, you, you pretty much get what you need. So that's, a, it's a, it is, it's a good education.
2: <laughs> well, the president came up with this idea that, um, I mean, whatever horse whisperer put it in his brain uh, should be. You know, kick down the stairs. Uh, the idea was, look, you know, we couldn't find masks that we needed, we couldn't find PPE supplies, etc. So this proves that we need to buy American, which means we need to build up the capacity to manufacture this stuff in America. America's vulnerable as long as we can't get our medical blah, blah, blah uh, from our American manufacturers. Uh, so he basically said, from now on, under my executive order that I've just signed, Uh, but have not actually published because he's waiting for the drug companies to respond. Uh, I am ordering that this long list of so-called essential medicines, which cover every ailment across the board, um, must be American-made. And no federal dollars can be spent either through Medicare or Medicaid or what have you to purchase stuff made elsewhere. Well, I mean, the first thing, beyond it being idiotic on multiple levels, the first thing is, how are you defining made in American? Because, uh, you know, in excess of 90% of the active pharmaceutical ingredients used to make formulations of medicines sold under American labels in the United States are actually made in either India or China. And about 80 plus percent of all generic drugs, whether they're marketed as American products or not, are actually made in India and China. If you cut off India and China, you actually cut off 100% of the global supply of aspirin. 100% of the global supply of ascorbic acid, of magnesium, of iron, pharmaceutical-grade iron. And you can go down this huge list of basic ingredients that are used to make vitamins and um, over-the-counter drugs and prescription drugs and realize, hey, made in America, that's impossible. That means a lot of people die because there's no alternative medicine for them. And the second thing is if you go this route, then you actually break your whole campaign promise of lowering drug costs because there is no way American companies rev up and start making their own active pharmaceutical ingredients without charging more for them. The whole reason this all got offshored, starting back 45, 50 years ago, was to lower costs. and so. If you, in fact, bring the entire pharmaceutical production cycle back to U.S. soil, even if that were possible, which I would argue it is not, but even if it were possible, everything from basic insulin to uh, you know, analgesics to psychiatric drugs, you name it, it's all going to skyrocket in price.
0: So, Kavita... You may amplify this, you may stand up and applaud, or you may pick another subject that has you incensed.
3: Yeah, no, I mean, I'll just say, I echo what Lori said, and I also think it points out to the naivete. Unfortunately, many people, Lori, don't understand anything about why it costs, why drugs cost what they cost, including our insane kind of, you know, manufacturer to PBM insurance company to pharmacy to this to that. So drug pricing in general is so screwed up. And I fail to mention that. It reminds me that would also be on the list of kind of first hundred days to not just undo some of the kind of chaos that's occurred, but to actually do some meaningful things to change like some of the... Uh, especially in Medicare, part B and D benefits. So I'll just stop there. The only thing I'll say, I know, I know we want to close, but in just thinking about a Biden 2021 set of priorities, I I don't think it's too early to put on the, you know, some public option, Medicare for all. I just want to, I want to say that like we saw a Biden Sanders unity package with a lot of really like great kind of motherhood and apple pie principles But I I would almost make an argument that in in my younger days, I was a very active member of Physicians for a National Health Plan. I still believe in that intent. I think that we have to resurface this conversation about, especially with so much of our employment tied to access to health care and what's happened with COVID, that I I would just put into context that I hope that that conversation is something that voters also express. Right now, we're basically, let's be honest... Voting because we're what Donald Trump has done to our country is utterly destructive. But I'm hoping in a hopeful way that we actually see a bit of sunlight to do something constructive. And when you look at other countries, you know everybody hates comparing us to Germany, South Korea. But what do they have besides a better approach because of MERS, et cetera, to public health? They actually have a national health system that works for them. Not perfect, not perfect but it kind of works. And so I'm hoping that comes back on the agenda, not a day 100 priority, but it's going to take a White House that keeps it on the top of the agenda to make it a reality.
0: Yeah, I totally agree with you. I, I, I very much feel that this, Washington is a city of the art of the possible, and they're full of people who you know, born the battle scars of fighting some of these fights for the past 20 or 25 years, whose first impulse is to compromise because they don't think they can get what they need to get. And I think that one of the things that a crisis like this one does, particularly when it's seen in the light of some of the warnings like the one that Laurie just made about the next pandemic, um, really suggests that what we need is... um, to do what's essential, not just just do what's possible, to sometimes do what's hard. And that includes fixing a broken healthcare system, getting past the one example of American exceptionalism that proves the invalidity of the concept, which is that we're the one out of the OECD nations that does not provide national healthcare coverage. And I think we will also have to go ahead and um, you know, use all the tools at our disposal to do the things that you're talking about, like uh, uh, guaranteeing a woman's right to choose. One of the ways you do that is you you get rid of the filibuster. If you control 50 or 51 of the seats, you go in, you say, we're going to vote these things in, you make it the law of the land. And finally, the thing that nobody wants to talk about, and I'll be the one that says it and then we can, then we can all go, is... Um, I think that there has been a lot of wrongdoing in the course of dealing with this. There has been self-dealing. There has been corruption. There has been hiding data. Uh, there has been suppressing uh, whistleblowers. Uh, uh, there have been a number of activities that in any other circumstance would be seen as reckless endangerment or willful negligence or or corruption, People have got to be prosecuted. If we ever go back through this kind of thing again, and people think they can get away with what they've gotten away with, um, it, 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 it would just be a crime. Of the 200,000 plus people who are dead based right now based on these models, uh, 90% of them don't have to be dead. You know, These were conscious choices. And if you, if you think, well, they didn't know, pick a date. They didn't know on January 1st, January 15th, January 30th, February 15th, February 28th. But, you know, at at a certain point, they knew. There was data, there was the world, and they chose to do what has led to this kind of death and and destruction. There are still 5 million people who have this disease, many of whom will have lingering consequences for a long time, as a consequence of self-interested, corrupt political decisions. And those people who made those decisions and put those lives at risk or lost those lives need to pay a pay a price, or we're just going to open the door to this happening again. Anyway, sorry, I tend not to editorialize like that, but but you know, I I, I people people don't want to talk about it, and I think that that we need to talk about it. Uh, I'm real real grateful uh, as always. For you guys to have joined us, uh, for Lena to have joined, uh, and uh, 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 but also, of course, who Lori who's still with us, and 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 Kavita, and we hope you're back soon. Uh, I wish that there would be a turn in these events. I, I think the first time we all got together and we we're talking about it, I was thinking, well, you know, we'll get back together every two or three weeks, and you know, in a couple of months, this will be gone. And here we are, five six months later. And it's just getting worse, mm-hmm. and 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 that, despite the fact that people like you, who know the right thing to do, are out there saying it, and it's being ignored. So, hope you're back uh, soon. Uh, uh, and for those of you who are out there listening. Uh, uh, you know, go to the DSRnetwork.com. We've had a lot of other programming this week. As I said, we've done the scenario exercise yesterday. I had a great conversation with Kurt Anderson, who's written a book called Evil Geniuses, which is about another chronic problem that we have in the United States, which is an economic system that has produced grotesque inequality over the course of the past 40 years. Democrats and Republicans both playing a role in that. Um, and we've got a lot more uh, like that in store in the weeks ahead. So please go to the thedsrnetwork.com, see what we've got, become a member, get a DSR mask, um, and come back again soon. Stay healthy in the interim. Thank you. Bye-bye.